As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. If you know, then you know it's those long nights, early mornings, rolling down these old back roads, working all week, trying to turn this blood, sweat, and tears poor with a little bit of green in it go. You can find me, smoke right behind me, two lanes and a finish line. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Support for the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed is brought to you by Manscaped who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming, Manscaped. They offer precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Add me to the list. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You want 20% off and free shipping? Go to manscaped.com and enter promo code JED and you will receive a huge discount for your next grooming experience. Check them out at manscaped.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss the Psycho Stripper and Manscaped products. All right, so we could go a lot of different directions on today's show. We've got Spring Fling Galat to recap. We had the NHRA Southern Nationals in Atlanta for the last time. Uh, and we'll get to that. We will get to all of that on a future episode. 
But for today's show, I've got a special treat. We caught up with Tyler Crossno, and Tyler is a young man who has already built a broad, impressive resume within our sport. Tyler has experience as a promoter, as a track prep specialist, as a racer, as now a track manager and even director of one of the premier series within our sport. As a result, he has a massive, unique perspective on our game and all that goes into it. So in this conversation, Tyler and I caught up a little bit. He kind of rehashed his career to this point and how he has accumulated the titles, the experience that he has at just 28 years of age. We talked about some of the challenges facing track managers. We talked about the role of the promoter in this day and age, specifically in big dollar bracket racing, and just some of the the stresses that go along with um, the role of track management that, quite frankly, as racers, we never have to worry about. Fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tyler. I hope that you will as well. Um, so before I throw it to Tyler, uh, we will first throw it to none other than Steve Evans. All across North America, sportsman drivers vie for not only divisional wins and championship points. Now here you're going to see that tortoise and hare style of drag racing as it's the handicaps that make it all work where you can combine literally dozens and dozens of classes of cars into one eliminator. Now we're going to get our first look at the sportsman ranks. All right, joining me today is... This is a long list, Tyler. We've got Vice President at Virginia Motorsports Park, Director of the PDRA, and uh, I'll say Proprietor of the Outlaw Street Car Reunion, Tyler Crossno. Tyler, thank you for joining us. Luke, glad to be here, buddy. All right, so that's a pretty impressive, I, I don't even guess that's a resume, like that's just a, a a listing of job titles at this point. Yeah, that's a that's a roster right now. <laughs> I know I I know that you're younger than I am. How how old are you, Tyler? Twenty eight. Twenty eight years old. Okay, so again, a uh, pretty impressive list of titles at any age, much less at your age. Uh, I know a little bit of the backstory here, but for our listeners and really for me too, take me through how how have you gotten to this point in your career? kind of uh, blessings from the good Lord above. First thing, um, I started, started at a little track in Tennessee. Some of you guys have probably heard of it, Jackson Dragway. Um, I went out, was, was bracket racing my dad's car for a year, year or two, and um, had some engine trouble, ended up hurting some parts, and it was, hey, I got to go to work. I got I to fix my race car. And ended up starting at the racetrack and went from there and, and moved to Holly Springs, Mississippi. Worked there for a year, year and a half. Um, when I left there, kind of thought, not sure where I'm going. Um, just kind of was in one of those lingo spots of, hey, what's the what's the best spot to take here? And really turned into a deal of, I'm going to sit back and just kind of play my, play my role, see what I can come up with. And at the time that I decided I was going to take a step back and just not really sit back and see what happens, but just kind of relax for a little bit. Uh, VP Racing Fuels called 
and I went to work for VP Racing Fuels as their traction compound specialist and did some racing fuel sales in the Tennessee area. Worked there for seven or eight months and my dad got sick and um, had cancer. And so I left that job because that job was in tons of travel, tons of, of that part, and, and I didn't need to travel anymore. When I left VP's position, I went to work for Memphis International Raceway. I uh, was track manager there uh, along with Paul Cartwright and worked worked there for eight months. Uh, during that time period, I lost my father. And um, I think I left there around August of that month. I, I lost my dad on June 1st. I lasted about another month and a half, two months there. And I just, it was a spot where I just said, I need, I need some time. I, I just need to turn the world off for a little bit and, and I need some time. And at that point, I uh, stopped working at Memphis, uh, got back in our, our Chevy 2 at the time that we had and bracket raced through the end of that year. And uh, starting the, the following season, I actually opened my own traction consulting business. Uh, went, started traveling, just kind of, hey, I can come in, help your program, teach your guys how to do better, uh, that sort of thing, and did that for five years. Uh, that took me to Australia twice, Brazil, uh, Canada, and where else did I go? Malta uh, in Europe, a little island south of Italy. So I ended up in all these different places, all just for motorsports. And, and it was a crazy, crazy deal. And um, towards the end of 2018, I had done some work for Tommy Franklin. Uh, he had just purchased Virginia Motorsports Park uh, less than a year before. And I was working for him doing track prep for PDRA in 2018 and presented an opportunity for me to to come to Virginia, take over the the drag strip operations and just kind of be a track manager of the of the drag strip at VMP. Had some other people involved with the with the company that were farther up and, and handled the business side. And I accepted that position, moved here in January of 2019 and began working at Virginia. Um, during that same time period we had some some changes go on in the PDRA series. And I moved into the PDRA director role um, at that point. And then since then, uh, we've made some other some other changes that have happened at Virginia Motorsports Park. Now I'm uh, vice president running the business operations and the drag strip operations, as well as the PDRA series is still moving and shaking and, and getting on down for, for another season here, over here in Virginia. It's a, it's a heady title. Like, I'm... It's pretty incredible over a, a relatively short um, span of time. Forget the the titles and the accomplishments and where your career is taking you. Like I feel like just the perception of of you in particular. Like I feel like you've been labeled as a as a traction specialist, obviously and rightfully so. And but then to combine that with experience as a promoter as a race director like I mean you've done a lot of things in a short period of time walk me through a little bit your day-to-day -day duties today and we'll take kind of each of your roles independently uh, vice president or you know as, as you kind of clarified like track manager of the drag strip side at VMP what is what is your day-to-day -day look like there and then how do you intertwine that with directing the PDRA series as well yeah so the Virginia stuff is is a lot more hands-on than than PDRA is and the hardest part is you, you look at PDRA. A lot of people know PDRA more than Virginia Motorsports Park. But for me, the Virginia Motorsports side is it's a 52 week process. It's every day of the year. 
And a lot of people see that completely opposite. They're like, oh, you probably get to take a couple of days off during the week or whatever. It's like, it's worse on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday than it is. The, the days off here for me are when we're running cars down the racetrack. But from for a day-to-day operations, it usually starts in the office um, for a couple of hours getting, you know, business operations, looking at the finances, going through team operations, getting getting the other staff moving and shaking, kind of getting their stuff going. Uh, we have a full, full-time full maintenance staff. Uh, they keep up the facility grounds, equipment upgrades, and, and keep everything serviced. Um, I've kind of moved away from that. Uh, I started in that role as, as well as the track prep side and, and start and trying to do that. But I still now will, if we have a private test session, I'm, I'm right out there in the middle of it. Uh, doing most of the track prep. I'm training in some of our other employees that have started in a lower role and now slowly building them into to heavier roles to take more off of me. So it's it's in a good transitional period right now as far as getting getting the facility to a spot where it can succeed when I'm not here. Um, for for a while it was, oh man, where's Tyler at? We, we, we need Tyler over here to do this, do that. And the more that I feel like I can step away and, and let the, the people that we have in place succeed, the better the facility will be as we go forward. Because I am gone for six weeks of the year whenever we do FPDRA to moving. That's a, that's a wise outlook. Was there any type of transition period there? Because just as a, as a small business owner myself, like I know that there is this inkling to want to have your hands on everything, right? And, and there's a... a there's a lot of freedom in giving away that control, but some of us struggle with it more than others, right? I struggle with it every single day. <laughs> every single day of my life, I struggle with, with turning something loose. And I, I've, I've tried to, to take on a lot of that role. Um, I tried to keep most of that off of the employees just because I didn't want to, I didn't want to over put too much on their plate, right? At, at the, at the immediate spot of time. And the more that time has gone, they've gotten comfortable in their role. Now I can add, hey, go do this job. We're going to do one job for about two or three months. We're going to get you comfortable in that. And then you think that's including in your role. We'll then add another job, add another job. And it's it's slowly gotten to a point where the guys that were just picking up trash and sometimes cutting grass are now scraping the racetrack, starting with track prep starting a test session with on the switch guys are now trained and on the safety truck that have never done that three years before I got here. And now when you look at it from a business standpoint, you're not bringing in extra employees to run a private test session. You're doing that with your staff that's here every day of the, of the week. Um, from a profitability standpoint, that just steadily going higher and higher. And, and to be able to take that and train the employees that were, that were here before or new employees that have come in since I've taken over. Um, it's really taken us to a new level on just the private testing side, not even events, not even counting events and, and how those run on, on their private entities, but just on the, Hey man, I need to come make five runs with this new pro mod car. Come on. I don't have to call in anybody else. The guys are already coming to work. Only thing we have to do is schedule an ambulance and they come they're 24 hours notice and they're here with us. So just in that side of it, it has taken us to a new level and, and we continue to go forward. And, and that's the name of the game on the, on the racetrack side. As a, uh, as a small time promoter myself, you know, having dabbled in that, I, uh, I tell racers all the time, like 
you need to put on an event just to have an appreciation for all of the BS that goes on behind the scenes, right? One I cannot. Time. Yes, right. Yeah, that's One all it time. takes. <laughs> now, I would have to assume that, uh, particularly in in your position at at VMP, like that even gets scaled up a notch. You've got to you've got to consider factors that, from a racer standpoint, we would never even cross our mind. What is I don't know if the hardest part is the 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 right way to frame this, but what are some of the things that you have to deal with in your position that maybe the racer just never even considers? The hardest part for me is dealing with county and state. And I say that because I'm 28 years old. Um, when I moved here, I can remember we went to a, to a meeting with the county and it was like, I walked in and they all looked at me like, who is this kid? Like, what is, what is this mess? And within six months, the relationship changed and, and everything was fine. But for the first six months, year, year and a half, until people got to know me, I struggled with that really bad. Um, coming in behind a guy that had been here for a long time, uh, Alan Carpenter was here for, I think, 10 or 12 years and had a very good relationship with a lot of racers. And a lot of people liked Alan personally. Um, that's hard to follow. Not just, not the job itself, not the doing the day-to-day the -day operations that, that, the job never changed that, that part never faltered, but the, the relationship side that, that the racers, the local businesses that they all had with Alan was hard to go. Well, you're not Alan you know, or, or people would call and say, well, hang on, what, what's, what's going on. And, and that was one of my biggest problems. I wouldn't say problems, but just hurdles to jump. Um, now the biggest hurdle that we see, especially this season is that, every event is so different. Like we were, we struggled a little last year um, through COVID and, and all of that, goodness gracious, that's its own chapter in a, in a book. But now this year we've opened up and we lost one of our, our tracks that was 30 minutes away from us in Richmond Dragway. Uh, they closed and from between, they didn't open last year and then 2021, they, they ceased operations. But for the fact of our car counts are up, like considerably. And, and we were looking at the last points race we had. Um, we were just over 300 cars for an ET bracket points race. And it's like, uh Oh, when you're used to before, Hey, we're going to offer two time trials on a Saturday. You're going to go into eliminations. We'll be done before curfew at 11 o'clock. Now you can't offer two time trials. You offer two time trials first rounds at seven, like, <laughs> and, and, and making changes on the fly that a lot of people don't understand. Um, that's been one of the changes, so to speak. Um, now with just the world changing as it is, um, the world is completely different than it was when I started um, just, just on the track prep side. Just two years ago, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. just two years ago, it's completely different. And then now I, on the business side, which was completely new for me, um, I look at things now and I go, you know, this was probably a, the worst year possible for somebody that's done this for five, 10 years. For me, that is coming in brand new, running, running the books, so to speak. Um, that was probably the best year for me to come involved because it was you. I was so detail oriented anyway of, okay, we can't lose money. Now you can't have fans. You're restricted on how many cars you can have and all this. Well, even tighter, you're watching numbers even more and even more. And now going forward, 
I have a better handle and a better respect of this is what it costs to open the door. If I want to run an ET points race, it's going to cost me X amount of dollars to, to run the event, open the gate, have overnight parking, security, lights, all of the stuff. Um, I know that better now than I would have pre-COVID. Sure. The, uh, the main reason that I wanted to have you on, Tyler, and obviously this is fitting some of your expertise into a, into a pretty narrow bubble in, in what we normally talk about here on the podcast within sportsman drag racing and, and more specifically big dollar bracket racing, I feel like you've got an, a very interesting and unique background uh, again at such a young age but having you've been a specific to the big dollar bracket racing scene where of recent you know probably of the last decade the vast majority of successful big dollar bracket races are presented by outside promoters right you don't see a whole lot of track presented big dollar bracket races beginning to 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 see more and more pop up but for the last decade Mm -hmm. almost non-existent in your experience you've been a promoter working with track managers you've been a track manager working with outside promoters the reason i bring this up like i had the conversation with jed it's been a a couple of months several episodes ago in basically saying like hey if i'm a track owner in instead of trying to recruit in peter biondo or kyle riley or whoever to put on this event why am I not trying to hire the next Jared Pennington? Why am I not trying to hire Tyler Crossno to have someone in place that can do those things? So curious your take on it. Where does the promoter fit into the picture, big picture? And, and how, in your mind, does that best work together? Yeah, and it's a hard one. I, I've seen um, from the promoter side, um, when I went into Bowling Green and entered in a, a bracket program to Outlaw Street Car Reunion for the first time, I was kind of worried. I was not sure what to expect. It's a, I would say it's a new market for me, but grew up as a bracket racer, bracket race. You want to say, that's not a new market. I've been in this, but it is. It's the first time you're throwing something out there that's different than the norm of what I've been in the realm of. Um, had a ton of success with it. A lot of people jumped right on board and had a great time. So immediately I think, well, hmm, this isn't that bad. And and then moved to Virginia. We start doing some in-house. We've, we've had a couple for years that have been household brands, um, Turkey Trot Race, Fall ET Challenge, Old Dominion Duels, those type of events that have been around for years. Um, and then we also hosted two events that were from the Loose Rocker promoters, uh, Michael Beard and Anthony Walton. They, they held two events here whenever I started and then through COVID um, through all that they've made some changes in their program and um, in 2021 they decided to, to take their events um, to Piedmont and I think they did a big they, they were trying to do a big race at Galat that I think got rained out earlier in the year and when I looked at that from a racetrack standpoint I said well now there's a hole in the schedule because I don't have those two events that were pretty they were very well liked um, so I kind of went to the pencil and, and said you know what I think it's time for a racetrack to try this. Um, my promotion background, all that racing background kind of knew what I liked as a racer, um, liked running for solid purses. Didn't want to have to come out of the pocket a ton and, and kind of went to the pencil and said, let's just come up with something. Let, let, let's look at some other events that are successful. Um, 
Anthony and, and Michael had successful events here, so we looked at some of what they've done here in the past because at the end of the day, that's the customer base that's here. Um, they supported what was here in the past, so let's look and see what what we can give them going forward. And we created the triple threat bracket series. Um, three events, two look the exact same, and another is a, a mega bucks event, so to speak. Um, the mega bucks event we did pre-entry. I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> uh, my first experience with a big money bracket race on a pre-enter on a pre-enter scale. Oh yeah, of course this was a great year to track pre-entry. Um, but we're doing a ten grander on Thursday, a thirty grander on Friday, seventy-five on Saturday, and a thirty on Sunday to close it. Um, the thirty, seventy-five, and thirty for seven hundred fifty bucks, two hundred fifty dollar deposit, pay at the gate the rest, that kind of thing. Um, completely new for me. And I'm just kind of like, I'm sitting back and I'm just having a stroke. I'm like, good. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's texting me like, man, we're excited. Pre-entry opens in five days. My stomach's already turning. I'm nervous as a wreck. And as it gets closer and gets closer, then I start having the the fear of, well, I wonder if the, like, what if the, the website crashes? What if, you, then you start thinking of every negative thing that could happen. What if the computer falls off the desk and it doesn't start it right at the time that everybody else is ready for it or anything and anything that can go wrong, I promise, I thought. And everything went off without a hitch. We had a couple of little small hiccups. Um, within 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes, we were over halfway sold out. And I really did not think that was going to happen. Um, I felt like we would be, as the event got closer, we would get there. I mean, the event's still in July, so it's still a ways out as we record this today. And as it sold out as quick as it did, and it was moving and moving, and we still, I think, have 75 or 80 spots left, um, I was just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe the first time we tried this, we're already at a point where we feel like we can be successful. Um um, that race is in July. And then in June, we've got a, a 10, 20, and 10, the, the first triple threat, uh, 10, 20, and 10 format for 400 bucks, same format in October. And those events are open to the public, no, no caps. Um, I just wanted to, the first big one with, with really big money up for grabs, I wanted to control car count to where everybody knew what was coming in. You know when you pull in the gate, there's no more than 400 cars that can get completed. You're not rushing. You're not, you can run a 400 car race very manageably and everybody have a good time. with it. No, it's funny from a promoter standpoint, because we've done both at the little, the summer door car shootout that we put on, we, mm -hmm. we had it open to the public. Then we kind of overran the facility and out of necessity did pre-entry only. But when there's no pre-entry process involved, I'm sure that you've been there. It's, it's amazing how as a promoter, your whole attitude changes seemingly with every phone call. Cause I would go from, Oh my God, there's no, nobody, somebody would call and Hey, Hey, I'm sorry. I can't make it. Right. I'm like, Oh my God, nobody's coming. Right. Like we're going to lose a ton of money. And then the next call is like, yeah, I'm coming. And can I save a spot for my buddy? And I hang up that call and I'm like, Oh God, where am I going to put everybody? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's no, there's no happy ground, right? There's no in between. And then the, so the pre-entry alleviates some of that because you kind of know what's who's coming, but it's a whole lot more work on the promoter end as well, right? Yes. And at the issues, like you say, of overrunning the server and site crashing and making sure that it's fair in terms of, you know, if there is an, is an overwhelming demand, making sure that the first 400 get the spot, like there's yep. just a lot, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of balls to juggle. No question. It is. 
And, and, and of course, being on the first one, I was like, oh, yeah, if I screw this up, this whole thing's going to fail. Right. <laughs> Everybody's going to think I'm a joke. Like, we, we've ruined this whole deal. We ain't even got to pre-entry day yet, but I'm in my mind, I'd already ruined it. <laughs> no, I, I, and I, the main reason I want to have you on, I saw the flyer for the, the big triple threat event, and I said, okay, this is something that, that Tyler and the guys at Virginia are putting on kind of on their own. And, and I, I had kind of made the push to Jet. I'm like, why aren't more tracks getting involved on this end? And I realized there's value. The, the, I think within our niche of racing, the biggest value that today's promoters bring is their hands-on race experience and, and the following that comes with that. Like they know what racers want, right? By racers, for yep. racers. I think you're in a unique position to be able to meld the two because I still think of you as a racer, right? Yes. You're just in a position to, to manage the track. And I realize that that is pretty unique. And maybe that's the sticking point to not see more tracks doing this. Although, like I say, mm-hmm. I feel like there's been an uptick lately. It's interesting when we look back on kind of the, the progression of big dollar racing over the past, shoot, now four decades. Yeah. At one point, there really wasn't such thing as a, an event promoter. You know what I mean? You had mm-hmm. tracks put on, whether it was Dick Moroso or the guys at Byron or Stanton or uh, Tri-State back in the day. Like yep. even where I grew up down in Texas, it was the Texas shootouts at, at Kennedale and the Texas mm-hmm. Motorplex, right? Everything was presented by a racetrack. And then we transitioned into you know recent years where, as I said before, there are few big dollar successful big dollar races that aren't presented by external promoters right um with the the exceptions the long-running exceptions i think being like the world super pro challenge at stanton uh byron's firecracker nationals which has picked up momentum again and picked up purse in in recent years um and like you know if you go way out west say boise's nightfire or something like that that's Mm -hmm. been a long-running tradition um i guess like in your mind that kind of promoter driven model it's got its pluses it's got its its uh, drawbacks as well i guess my argument was that for the good of the sport as a whole like you could argue and i'm and i hate to rail against any specific promoters because i think they've brought a lot of good to our form of racing Mm -hmm. but i think from the the outlook again as the, the the sport as a whole you could certainly make the argument hey it's better for everyone if all of the money accumulated here is either going back to the racers or going to the facilities to keep the facilities open, right? And, and to improve. Exactly. And kind of cutting out that promoter in the middle. Like I say, you can make arguments both ways, but big picture, you could argue like that, that might be a better way of going about it. Yeah, and that was something that we looked at was, you know, when you look at it from a, from a promoter standpoint, and, and I know that side because of, of being there, there were a lot of times that when I was doing individual races, I would look back and go, man, I hate having to charge this guy 250 bucks, but I've got this bill that I have to pay or I can't do this again. So I had to be higher on entry fees, higher on tickets, higher on whatever it was, because I had to pay that bill. I had to go to the racetrack at the end and go, here's this check that weighs more than a yellow pages. And you're (laughs) going to go put this in your bank account. I'm going to go home. But to be able to, to be able to, for the promoter, to give themselves that peace of mind, knowing that, okay, I'm going to pay my expenses. I've got to pay the racetrack. I've got to pay the racetrack's expenses and I've got to pay the purse. Okay. I got to charge a little more. Well, then we took the, the kind of the mindset of, okay, we know what it costs to open the door. 
for us to, to operate. We're going to be open for four days. Okay, this is how much we need to make to pay for our overhead. And we built that event in, built in the purses, and then we said, you know what? This is how many cars I think we can pull. Here's where we need to be on entry fee. And if it's more and it becomes more profitable, great. Then we get to then you know then we get to pay for the lights we just put up out there, or or anything like that. And that's what I feel like when you look at it from a racer standpoint. The racer looks at the facility that's putting on the events and says, "Well, we said we've had the same lights for 25 years. PA system still doesn't work. The racing surface is good, but not great. The paint's falling off the wall. You, everybody's going to find something that they don't think is right in, in the facility." And if you can take an event, I, I'm just using triple threat for an example because it, it, it's what we're starting. Um, if I can take a triple threat event and turn some profit, then all of a sudden the parking lot gets striped and, and, and parking spots are cleaner and easier to find. Or there's more, more entities, more apparel, a giveaway of something. If we can do something back for the racers or back for the facility, I feel like that creates the support for not only the local guy, but for the racer that comes two, three times a year, just because I like coming to Virginia or I like going to I-57 to your deal whenever you were throwing that. Um, because they like seeing that their facility, everybody, every racer out there has got a track that's theirs and, and people have that on Facebook. I see it all the time. Um, and we've done it. I, I mean, I, for years I said, Jackson Dragway was where I grew up. That, that was my little, little track. And, and it was everybody likes to, to call their track their own, but from a racetrack standpoint now, and, and I'm the world's worst at it, and I feel really bad for Tommy and Judy Franklin because I'll call all the time and go, we need to buy this. It's not going to do anything but make somebody else happy, but we need to buy this. And and we'll do it. And it, and that's been the the blessing of being here is Tommy and Judy are just so engulfed in the, in the racing world. And they love racing probably more than I do. And, and to have somebody like that all the way at the helm and, and pushing, pushing us to be better, not only for, for the business or not for, not for each other, but for the racers that pull in the parking lot and for the sport in general, that's just a recipe for success. And, and to see that racers are supporting that, and we hope that continues with our, our big money series, um, that just leaps and bounds continues to get better and better. On the, the big dollar bracket scene, like I said, we've got the the long running events, whether they be at Byron or, or Stanton or uh, or Boise, and but I've seen more and more um, tracks kind of stepping up to the plate with events of various magnitudes, right? But, yes. but track throwing events, I know that uh, uh, Carolina Dragway's got something similar coming up. You've got mm -hmm. what you're putting on. I think um, MIR's always done some things on their mm -hmm. own. Uh, yep. Beach Huntsville's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, right. It's, that's another good example. Mm -hmm. In your mind, and I mean, you can speak to this from your personal outlook or just a little bit broader in general, what is the key to racetracks like your own and others kind of crossing that chasm to build the trust among that big dollar market and to make this work basically without the help of an external promoter? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that I see is creating a successful points program whether it's a points program, whether it's a weekly program, whatever that local program is, when the local program I feel like is successful, then I feel like you can take that leap. And I don't know how big that leap is. Is it a five grander for a hundred uh, like Brock and, and Beach Ben have done um, that, that showed success right before we got there for PDRA. Um, that's kind of a first, I always feel like that's a first stepping stone 
to attract to say, you know what, I think we can do this bigger money stuff. A five thousand for a hundred dollar entry, you know, you pull in seventy five eighty cars, do round or round of buybacks. You're breaking even. You're doing what you need to do. You're paying your bills, and then as it grows, then at that point, I feel like that that track has confidence to say, man, let's throw a twenty grand or let's throw a ten grand or whatever that mm-hmm. that monument is. And to your point, like on the racer end, if if you're going to a track that struggles to get 30 cars on a Saturday night and can't run an efficient program with 30 cars. Like when they throw five or 10 granders, like I just steer away, you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we fought that for, for a little bit of time. When I got here, we were having some, we know we had brand new concrete. I'm not going to say it wasn't completely seasoned in, but it was fresh and it was new. And there was, there was a lot of quirks that I didn't know about. And, and even now to this day, we still learn every week that we were on the racetrack, but there was times where I could have probably got away with not doing everything that I did. But at the time, that's all I knew to do. And now going forward, I think we get better um, as a racetrack. I get better at my job. And then from the race director side, being able to push employees, hey, look, guys, we got to send a pair down the racetrack every 45 seconds. You need to have a pair in the shutdown, a pair on the starting line, a pair in the water box. And, and keeping that smooth pace of a race moving. As long as people always see race cars on the racetrack, I feel like their attitudes kind of can come down a little bit. There's no, oh, man, we've been sitting out here doing this. They, they ain't called cars lanes 15 minutes and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I grew up in that. I, I grew up at a racetrack where you had to run every pair of foot brake cars out before you could call Super Pro. And, it, and when you look back on it now, being at a facility that's big enough to never have that delay, I go, man, how did they even function? How do they operate? And thinking of back then, it was just, that was what every track did. That's what we were used to. And, and now these days, everything's so different. I'm just like, gosh, how did, how did racetracks not just get bashed at the heels for 10 minutes of downtime between the two classes and stuff like that. But I, I feel like you said, it's all in building confidence it's all in instilling trust. And, and at that point, when you start building that, I feel like the, the rings on the ladder just get easier to climb. How much do you feel the pressure of, because as we talk about this, like I just, I can't help but put myself in your shoes. And you think of like your regular, you know, Saturday night ET bracket race. And you're like, all right, this isn't, this isn't a major event. Like you almost want to like take a, a deep breath compared to some of the things that you guys put on. Yeah. But at the same time, like it's so easy to create a negative stigma about any variety of things, like a, whether it's a timing issue or a track issue or um, mm-hmm. getting into it with one racer over payout or like little, seemingly little things that can not only have an impact and, and aggravate one racer, like in today's world that can spread so quickly and that stigma can stick with your racetrack for months. not just the local crowd, but yeah, the bigger events and months or years, you know what I mean? Yep. Do you feel that pressure like every time that you open the gates? I do. Um, the biggest scare for me is, and I'll use this week as an example. I've got a Thursday night protest session, which you'll have anything from pro mods to radio cars to, to anything in between. So you kind of have different attitudes. Well, then Friday night, you've got, we have our first ladies night event um, where we let ladies in for free. It's testing tune, basically kind of testing tune or grudge race um, from on Friday night for five, six hours. They come in, have a good time. 11 o'clock, they're gone. Well, through that, you're also parking for the bracket race that's on Saturday. 
and then you have autocross on Sunday on Mother's Day. So across four days, you have four completely different attitudes. <laughs> and, and in your mind, you have to be cognizant of, okay, Friday night's a grudge crowd. It's going to be a little rough, but they're still a racer. They're still a paying customer. You still have to, to listen to their needs, but their needs are completely different of that of an ET bracket points racer that's coming in less than 24 hours later. So you've got a facility that's in operation, you know, more than half the days of the year during race season, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's probably a, a, a stretch, you know what I mean? You, you, <laughs> on your end, like, I, for, correct me if I'm wrong, like you may have the team in place where you don't have to be there when the, when the, when the track is running, but my impression is that you're pretty hands-on. And then you <laughs> put on top of that the day-to-day um, business obligations, like what's a typical work week? I try not to count it up. If I count it up, I'm just going to be depressed. <laughs> um, usually a normal day for me is I'll usually get to the office around 9 o'clock. Um, I'm not an early morning guy. People have learned, do not come up to me. If I'm at the racetrack at 6.30 in the morning, there is something wrong. We had to fight weather or we start really early. Just leave me alone. <laughs> but I am not a great morning guy. Um, Tommy gives me all kinds of son if you get up and be at work by 6 30 your phone doesn't ring by until nine so you're going to be two and a half hours ahead well it sounds great on paper until you have to function and do that <laughs> so i usually will get to the office around nine o'clock um, um kind of mainly focus on vmp for the beginning parts of the day um if we have a test session of course you're on the racetrack um usually i'm on vmp stuff till five six o'clock um go grab something to eat most of the time. And then from that point till around 10, 11 o'clock, I'm usually PDRA. Um, so my days usually are, are 9 a.m. If a normal day when we're not testing, I'm usually 9 a.m. to 10, 11 o'clock at night. Oof, right. Seven days a week. Seven days a week. Yeah, there are no days off. <laughs> <laughs> the um, one, and I've always – and people get on to me all the time. They're like, man, you need to take a day off. You need to do this, you need to do that. And – I guess it's from when I traveled, I always felt like I had to be working because I had the attitude of if, if I'm not pushing the limit, somebody else is and they're getting ahead of me and I'm way too competitive. That's why I had to quit racing. Like <laughs> I was way too competitive and they didn't have buybacks that went like fourth, fifth, sixth around. So I was just like, Nope, mm -mm. I, I, I've got to retire for a little bit on this. I still have a car and, and enjoy every now and then jumping in one of Tommy's dragsters or something. But, I, I knew at that point, I I have to be ahead of people. I feel like I have to be, I, don't, I might not work hard, but I'm going to be at work for a long period of time. And that's just, I, I don't kill myself. I, I would personally, I would rather work nine to 10 than I would work eight to five and leave at five o'clock with my head down going, I, I don't even know if I can drive four minutes down the road and get to my house. I'm worn out. I would rather leave at 10 o'clock and still feel halfway fresh, go home, knock some sleep out, come back and do it again tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, to keep those hours, you've got, there's got to be some level of pacing, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, let's, you, you mentioned the, the PDRA thing and kind of brought that back around. Let's go down that road just a little bit because I'm, I'm curious in your position with the PDRA because here's my, here's my, um, outside impression of the series right i know that it's awesome it's like the fastest bracket quote-unquote bracket cars on the planet right mm -hmm. 
uh, specific to your top sportsman, top dragster stuff. And I know just from talking to racers that you've got this tremendously loyal following. Like PDRA racers kind of look down on any other type of racing. Like they, these guys do an awesome job. The events are fun. They they pay. Like it's it's a cool atmosphere on down the road. And so they really advocate for the program. And yet outside of that, and, and in my world, like it's just a handful of people that I talk to, I don't hear a whole lot about PDRA. Like I have a hard time keeping up with it following. It's almost like those events exist in, the, in, a, in a vacuum, at yep. least in relation to what I'm used to within sports and drag racing. Correct. Why is that? I'll be honest. From So before I ever started, I was like, PDRA is cool. It's kind of like a good old boys club. And, and I said it for years. And now I look back and I go, man, I'm surprised I even have a job. But, <laughs> but from, from a long period of time, that's what I felt like it was. I felt like it was kind of like a country club. These guys went and raced PDRA. And for a lot of people, and, and I, I still feel this way, for me, as a racer myself, I could never compete at PDRA. Because I don't think I could ever afford that level of okay. car or, yep. or, or program or anything like that. Not that the bracket bash program isn't great and, and it provides that local, that local guy a spot to go run at the big show. It's just to me, I feel like I could never obtain the level of vehicle, the level of program to be successful and, and chase for a championship. I don't think I could ever do that. And I think to a lot of people, that kind of turns away a lot of attention. That's a good point, right? I could see and, that. And I look at I look at guys that race in HRA top sportsman top dragster, and they come over and run a PDRA race, and they're like, "I got to turn on another kit, like I, I got to put timing in this thing, or I, I've got to change something because I'm not going to qualify. I qualify in the top ten at NHRA, and I'm not even going to make the back half thirty two field if I don't do something different, and to hear guys say that it, it kind of brings, brings in a, a little bit of form of pride. Like, Oh yeah, we're bad of the bone over here. We got some fast stuff. And then it also brings a little bit in my mind now, um, it brings in a little, a lot of fear. It's like how many guys are going to, to, to keep running 14s, 420s and, and look at the sheet and go, whoo, I barely made it in there. Like at Bowling Green, we had we were a 16 car elite field in top sportsman, and then our back half top sportsman was 32. I think we had 60. I think we were 60 cars total, and the bump to get in the 32 car field was a 435. So and that's I'm like 48 cars at 435 or quicker. Or quicker, and I'm like, this is nuts. Like extremely awesome to watch as a fan. Great racing. As a racer sitting that I I would be sitting back in the pits, I'd be going. Woo, this is hard. Like, uh, not only do you have to drive the finish line and let go of the button on time, you also got to get there fast enough. Well, and that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on one hand, you've got your loyal supporters that take so much pride and yeah, mm -hmm. like we're the baddest of the bad, right? But on the flip side, it can definitely be, uh, I don't know, like a, a deterrent. You know, like, do I, is the, do I really want to dip my toes into this water, right? Yep, and I saw that in Top Dragster at Bowling Green. Um, always have known D3 cars are fast. You know, D3 top dragsters always been fast. And for a lot of our local guys, or our, our traveling crew that, that comes to every race, you know, they, they rolled in, chest all poked out. Hey, man, I qualified number seven in elite over at Goliath last, two, two last race. And they rolled up and they're going, 
I'm not even going to make the bump. This is the fastest top dragster field in the elite we've ever had. There were, I think the number one qualifier was 372, and the the 16 car bump was a 386. Holy smokes! For for top 16 and and top dragster, and it's just like you like you sit there and you go, there's guys running 390s, 380s that did not make the top 16 that are running the back half, and I'm like, nothing wrong with running the back back half. But you sit there and you look at a guy that's pushing his stuff hard enough to go 380s, and you go, sorry, sir, you were not one of the quickest 16 on the property. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I got a 380 dragster, like, it's fine. I'll run the 32-car show, but that ain't why I came, right? Uh-uh. I did not <laughs> come for this. <laughs> I'm still going to compete. I'm still going to try to take your money home. But I did not come for this. Oh, man. And it- I think that, like you said, I think that creates a stigma of, man, that's awesome. But, whew. I don't know if I can go over there and compete. And and let's be honest, we all know this as racers. If you think you if you think before you pull in the door that you can't compete, you probably not gonna pull in the door. I know. I, I mean, I've done it. I, I've watched races for a long time. I wanted to go race a couple of big money deals and was planning to go. And within the, like the two three weeks leading into the event, have a bad race somewhere along the way and just go, man, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to go spend that entry money or I don't know if I want to go and, and throw my hat in the ring. And then I, you know, pound through it and have a good race. And then the week before just fall off the boat and can't hit water. Don't go to the big money race. I'm scared. I'm not losing that. But I, I feel like that same conversation happens with guys that are running top sportsman, top dragster, other places that say, man, I'd like to go to that PDRA race. It's close. And then they start looking at their program and what they're running and what would it take if if the car count wasn't high enough for the back half to be 48 cars. And I think that sometimes deters cars away. And it's it's scary from a from a series standpoint because we look at that and go, number one, are racers going to improve? Are racers going to speed their programs up? But also, the, the world we live in now is so crazy that are people going to go spend the money? Are people going to continue to travel? Are people going to retreat, stay home? Are they now looking at a 470 index race that that's local or a couple hours away that they can take their 455 car, drop some timing out of it, pull some jet out of it, and I'm going to go run 470 index. My dial-in's just not going to change on the door. <laughs> I'm curious, and I'll close with this, and I admittedly, this is going to be asking you to paint with a pretty broad brush, and you can take it in whatever direction you want, but I'm fascinated, given your experience and your perspective, I mean, in between competing and, and putting on races and managing events of various forms, uh, here locally to internationally, like you, you've seen so many aspects of this game, Again, take this in whatever direction you want because it's it's going to be a pretty broad question, but where is all this headed? Like, what do you see as the future for our sport, and what do you see as the, the maybe being the biggest key to uh, to keeping it successful and keeping it growing? And that's the magical question right sure. there. Sure. Somebody answer, somebody answer that one right. They're going to basically win the lottery. Um, I really feel like from a facility standpoint, you have to cater to the local base. Um, a lot of racetracks miss that. I feel like, um, a lot of, a lot of tracks miss the local square, the local circle. Um, you know, do 
are, it's always great to have those events where you're trying to promote from five, six, seven, eight hours away, bringing in a show for fans and all that. Is that the, more important in your mind mm-hmm. from a revenue stream standpoint or to have like true loyal advocates? I think both. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel like that's a both because the events that you're promoting, a major event, I'll use my shakedown event for an example. Um, we'll have 15 racers within two hours from here, but we'll have 150 to 200 from eight hours. So I feel like if, if you, you push that local crowd to understanding, Hey, we're, we're racing, we're doing this, we're doing that. I feel like when you have those events that are, Oh man, the, you know, Stevie Jackson's coming or Randy Weatherford or whoever's coming to ra- to race. They want to come support the racetrack because they're used to the supporting the track. So you kind of, it's almost sounds bad. It's almost like training a dog. Um, but you're training, you're training people to, Oh, Hey, when there's a big event in town, you know to go support VMP or Maryland or whoever that track is. And because you want to see your your home track succeed, whether it's your racing, you're not. Mm-hmm. I have guys do that all the time. Well, and then I I'm think it's, it's somewhat reciprocal when you get to the, the that point with your mm-hmm. core audience is that, hey, I want to come support VMP because VMP does so much to support me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like when you when you start that, that support level from a racetrack side, when you start the support level close to home and just slowly build it out, I feel like that is the stepping stone um, to start going. And as far as the sport in general, I feel like through a pandemic, I feel like we've all done a pretty decent job. Um, A lot of racetracks could have said, and a lot of racetracks did, a lot of racetracks kept the gate closed last year. Um, For some people, it was better to leave the gate closed. For, for us, we, we were, you know, if we could have a, a five-car test session, we were having a five-car test session. We, we, you know, we needed to be open. Um, for other racetracks, it was better to shut the door, just say, hey, look, we're not going to be able to, to recoup what we would lose or, or vice versa. It's better to, to just take this one on the chin, stay closed, upgrade, or get ready to go for the next year and move forward. Um, but I really feel like through a pandemic, through everything that this world's been through, I feel like the sport of drag racing has done very well. I feel like fan interaction is almost better than what it was before because it seems like stick and ball sports are still trying to turn people away. Um, the outdoor entertainment is, is kind of standing there with open arms. And, I mean, we've seen seen fans come in for, for points races. Never saw that before. Um, but But having that – freedom i guess you would say it, it kind of lets people take back to 2019 pre-covid um because going to the racetrack sitting in the grandstand standing on the fence whatever that may be that's the same normal there, there's nothing different about the racetrack other than maybe the cars on the racetrack or, or the program that you're watching but the it seems like to me the sport is in a good spot of course there there's flaws all the way through um, as there is in every business or every sport or anything like that. I just feel like as long as we keep continuing to take care of the local base, every racetrack around takes care of their local base. When it comes to the big events, I feel like you'll always get that support because not only will, not only will you be promoting your big event from a racetrack standpoint, your racers that support you week in and week out are the first ones to share those posts on Facebook. 
first one to tag in their buddies from North Carolina or Maryland saying, hey, guys, we got a big one. Why don't y'all come on up and hang out with us? And I've really seen that more end of last year and first of this year before I, than I ever have. Um, before then, it was always kind of, oh, hey, they're having a big event at VMP. Where are we going to go? Or, or whatever. And we did it for years as a, as a racer. Like, you know, you would go for whatever event, like a heads-up event at Memphis. We don't race that. We have a bracket car. So we would go trying to find something else because we wanted to go race. But nowadays, I feel like that people are trying to support their track because they want their track to be there whenever they need the support or whenever the big money races or, or something that they see needs support as well. It's interesting to think about this moment in time that we're in because from a from a racer standpoint, at least in our niche, you know, kind of the big dollar bracket market, I feel like from the midpoint of 2020 until probably early 21, we hit that perfect storm, so to speak. Jed and I talked about this as well. Like mm-hmm. there was a there was a limited number of entertainment options, right? Like we we couldn't yes. really go on vacation. We could go racing, right? And as a result, like car counts soared for the events that could happen, right? The right. events were limited, so the, the 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 supply was down and the demand was immense, right? And yeah. now it seems as though in some aspects we're beginning to turn the corner on that and curtail it a little bit. But what I've seen thus far in 21 is more from the spectator standpoint, like specific to Atlanta, the national event last weekend, yeah. like that place was jammed. And it's almost like, Hey, we just don't have a whole lot of options, you know, for entertainment. And it was the last race at Atlanta. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. things that went into that, but I feel like to your point, this outdoor entertainment is there with open arms. Hey, it's something that we can go do. And racing is, a, is an area that can take advantage of that right now. I'm curious uh, your thoughts. Um, big picture going forward. This seems to be a, a, a topic of conversation within sportsman drag racing circles. And if I'm going to be completely honest, it, it was a topic of conversation when I was 10 years old, right? Like it's, it's an ongoing concern, but the, but it, it seems relevant and it didn't seem as relevant to me back then. Um, but it seems relevant is that like, where does the next generation of racers come from? There's so many other things that we can be doing with our time, with our money. The the allure of the muscle car, so to speak, isn't there like it was in previous generations. Yeah. Like, any thoughts along those lines? That's the hardest question. Sure. And so I've been to, I've been to two national event conferences within HRA now, and every, each time I've been, hey, have y'all figured out anything? Has anybody had any luck with the young crowd? And um, I'll be honest, we actually tried a deal local, um, had the first one in January, Virginia in January. It's going to be cold. It's cold, cold, cold. <laughs> and I think it was 35 or 36 degrees. I was actually in Kuwait, didn't, wasn't here for it. And all it was was a car show. It was a car show, cruising, hangout, whatever. And there was, I think, 450 entries in the truck show and over 2,500 people. And I'm like, oh, oh, whoa, hang on. We just hit something here. Not that it's supposed to do it. That was not supposed to happen. And I really feel like the younger crowd right now is, at least here, where, where I am, I don't know if it's as much of a competition standpoint um, or it's just somewhere to go hang out. From, from what I've noticed, it's just they want somewhere to go don't mind paying. Um, I think we were like $10 admission 
ten dollars more to show or something like that. Um, just had a had a big race this past weekend with an outside promoter, and they did the same. The same group came and had two hundred and fifty in the truck show, jam packed with spectators. And it's just like when you go down and you talk to these guys, guys and girls, and you know. And, and the the cool part for me is it's all different people. You know, white kids, black kids, Mexicans. I mean, it's everybody's in a group together. There's no Oh, that's, you, you know, there's none of that separation that you see in the rest of the world these days. It's so just terrible. Um, everybody's is one. And it, it's one of those deals where it's almost kind of weird. They all listen to the same music. They all drink the same Coca-Cola drink. And, and it's just like, what in the world? Like everybody's the same. But when in that world, we've even tried like, hey, why don't we get this market here? Why don't we try like a little free entry, race for a trophy, whatever. Nope. Might have three cars. And I'm like, okay, what are we missing? I, that's what scares me is you get 250 people here with vehicles that are, you're just doing a, Hey, we're going to go out and do a bracket race, sportsman bracket race, street car, daily driver deal and get five cars. I'm just like, that makes no sense. Like, I want to go fast. When I was 16, all I wanted was somewhere to go fast. Right. And I just feel like that, that, that this group of young, young adults, and I say young adults, I'm going to say younger than me. <laughs> um, I think they are scared of defeat. I really think they're scared of defeat, scared of losing and, and their buddies pulling back up and they go, Hey man, we got you getting beat on video. That's the last thing that any of them want to see. Yeah. But you say, Hey, look, we're going to do a, a gambler's race for $10. Nobody will pull them apart. Nobody pulling stage lanes. Hey, guys, we're going to do fun runs for an hour. Here come every one of them. And it's, it's one of the deals that I just think they want somewhere to have fun. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a competition for them right now. And I don't know if it's they haven't had the thrill, of, the thrill of victory yet. I don't know if they've not found that. But here, I've just noticed that it's they want a hangout if you get them to the racetrack, they also are getting to watch fast drag cars and they go, man, that's cool. When, when do you have another one of those races? Yeah. And then they become a fan. And I think that's the, the, the ball that rolls down the hill here, but it, it blew my mind. I, I was just completely shocked of the fact that you offer up a, a shootout or a bracket deal or anything like that. And they're not interested in competition. And I think what we have to figure out is, okay, we've got them here now. Now we, we've trained them when we do a truck show or we do a show or whatever, they're going to come. How do we make them a racer? Right. How, how, do we, how do we introduce them to, to what racing is and get them in competition? And, and it, does that come with age and time? I'm not sure. But that's the, that's the question where I'm at. I, now I'm I'm like, I've got the, I've got the customer base now. Mm -hmm. How do I make them a racer? How do I right. make them get into street ET or, or junior high or whatever that is? No, it's, that's interesting because I mean, just thinking back through my introduction to the sport, like it's bringing it full circle because when I first started going to the racetrack with my father, it was more for the social event and I grew to love the competition. Right. Yeah. But initially I just wanted to be a part of that scene. And mm -hmm. that's same way. Yeah, that's the same thing. But the the challenge, to your point, is is how do you lead them across that 
that chasm, so to speak, into like, okay, let's actually, it's, this is really fun being here, but you know what's even way, More way fun? cooler? Yeah. Right? Actually getting here. out onto the racetrack, <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. No, that, and, and I think they'll slowly get there, but like you said, it's, you know, you look at, you look at our sport and, and you, and I say this for NHRA Superstock stock, those guys that race that aren't getting any younger. How do we get people my age and younger to look at super stock and go, that's cool. I, I need one of those, or I want one of those because that scares me for the future of those classes. Um, same thing for, for bracket racers at a lot of local tracks. I mean, you, you see guys that are selling out. I mean, you look at online every day, there's a race car getting posted. There's somewhere somebody's posting a race car for sale. What's it going to take for that younger adult to look at that Fox body Mustang that's going to cost him 5,000 and go, man, I can take that and make a foot brake car and I can start there just like you with your Vega. I I think that's the perfect story is, you know, you, you built the Vega and and now look at it. But how do we get that young adult to look at whatever kind of car it is to look at that and say, man, I, I could start, I could start there instead of looking at the pro mod with a million dollar rig sitting beside it and a thousand yeah. dollar snap on toolbox rolls out of the back door going, I, I, I can't ever get there. Yeah. That's cool. But that is completely unattainable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm never going to get there. Cause that, then I hear that you, you hear that at PDRA is man, there's so much money here. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to go, you don't have a clue. You don't even know what that motorhome cost, <laughs> much less, you know what the race, you think you know what the race car cost. You don't know what the motorhome trailer cost, <laughs> but I hear that a lot from fans. They're, they're like, this is an awesome show. You know, racing's awesome, side by side, et cetera, et cetera. The whole, the whole pitch that you want a fan to tell you, but they go, man, it, it's just so unattainable. Like, I'll never be able to have a pro mod, but I got this bracket dragster over here that'll go 480s, and we have a blast with it. But you hear that a lot as far as the unobtainable side. And, and I think, I mean, let, let's face it, we've all been been young and wanted to do things, but go, I just don't have money for it. And I think what we all have to to look at is how do we make it to where that daily driver that that, that kid drives to high school or to college or to work or whatever that, that he does, he or she does, how do we make that vehicle get them in the winter circle, get them going rounds, winning a free pizza, winning $200, whatever that is. How do we get what they have? How do we make what they have work for, for drag racing? And I think that's – that's the biggest question. And that's the key to planting the seed long term. Yeah. I agree. Tyler, great stuff, man. I could talk about talk about this stuff with you for hours, um, but uh, we got to cut this off somewhere. So I really appreciate yep. your time. Uh, I know that uh, your time is in high demand, so appreciate <laughs> you uh, spending an hour or so of it with with us here. Um, where can uh, if people are interested, whether it's in the, the Triple Threat Bracket Series, uh, the PDRA, VMP in general, like where's the best place to find you and what you, what all you got going on? Yep, uh, definitely social media. Uh, we've got a really good social media following. Uh, Virginia Motorsports Park and PDRA Racing on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then our websites are racevmp.com and pdra660.com. Awesome stuff. Tyler, appreciate your time, my friend. Always good catching up and uh, appreciate you sharing some of your vast perspective with us. No doubt. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for the opportunity. Can't wait to come back. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, and you can do that on 
Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. All right. So we've told you about our great friends at Manscaped and I want to tell you a little bit about the products that those guys sent out that you can get your hands on too. Now, the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0 also includes Crop Preserver. Yes, Crop Preserver. You've got to preserve the crop. It's an anti-chafing, junk deodorant, and moisturizer. So, you know, you already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? And yes, your junk stinks. Get that crop preserver and give yourself a little bit better scent. And speaking of bad areas and bad scents, you know, I'm thankful for their crop reviver. And this product, along with the crop preserver, keeps your junk from sweating, smelling, being sticky. I mean, we need that freedom and that comfort to perform at a high level, especially if you're listening to this show, you're probably a racer. So you need that. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts in the Perfect Package 3.0. They put in some high-performance Manscaped boxers, boxer briefs, that is, that'll keep your junk feeling fresh all day, and a travel bag, too. You need the Perfect Package 3.0 or any other products from the awesome folks at Manscaped. Now, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code JED at manscaped.com. Did you hear me? That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just go there, use the promo code JED, unlock your confidence, and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling 
of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers. That's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.